The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California. Streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified student bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit ConflictHealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about personal power, and I'm really excited because I'm going to be interviewing the editor of this book that was originally written by Napoleon Hill. It's called The Path to Personal Power by Napoleon Hill, who is the author of Think and Grow Rich. And many people may not even know who Napoleon Hill was. We're going to talk about him. But I'm very excited because I read Mitch Horowitz's uh, column every single month in Science and Mind magazine. And also, he is on the cover of the July issue of Science of Mind magazine. And let me tell you a a little bit about this wonderful man. Mitch Horowitz is a writer and publisher with a lifelong interest in man's search for meaning. The Penn Award meeting winning author of Occult America and One Simple Idea, Mitch has written on everything from the war on witches to the secret life of Ronald Reagan for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Salon, and Time Magazine, the Washington Post says Mitch treats esoteric ideas and movements with an even-handed intellectual studiousness that is too often lost in today's raised voice discussions. He's also the voice of popular audiobooks, including Alcoholics Anonymous and the Jefferson Bible, and the host of the web series Origins, Superstitions. Mitch is a vice president and executive editor at Tarch Peregrine, which is a division of Penguin Random House. You can find out more about him at our website at conflicthealing.com, where we link to his website, mitchhorowitz.com. And I know that I haven't had a chance to read his new book, but we can even talk about that because he has a brand new book coming out. And um, so we can find out a little bit about that and about him. And so thank you so much for joining us from the East Coast, Mitch. Thank you. Glad to be here. I I understand your new book is called The Miracle of a Chief Definite Chief A.I.M. AIM. (laughs) The Miracle of a Definite Chief AIM, yes. Yes. And so what is that about? Well, uh, having a definite chief aim, and and the theme of the book, The Miracle of a Definite Chief Aim, is really the cornerstone of Napoleon Hill's program. Hill believed that there were certain traits that you would find over and over again in the lives of exceptional people. And he believed that attaining uh, what you wanted in the world, attaining your ideals in the world, being able to move through life 
with personal agency and effectiveness starts, the baseline starting point is having one definite chief aim that you hold to with absolute passion, a, a central reason for your existence. And mm. you know, we often walk around thinking, well, I have an aim, but if we scrutinize that, we might discover that we have a very generalized or vague aim or that we have several aims, um, some of which may be in contradiction to one another. And he'll believe that if you look at the lives of successful authors, artists, diplomats, entrepreneurs, teachers, you will almost always find that that person had one passionately, even obsessively felt aim on which he or she staked existence. And, you know, in a certain sense, we tend to think of an obsessive aim as something that's problematic, you know, almost as something that you diagnose and treat. But hmm. uh, he felt that, that a tough but, but really serviceable truth of life was that if you look into the lives of your heroes, into the lives of people you admire, almost always these people, whether they were activists or inventors or entrepreneurs, whoever they were, had one absolute aim that they lived by. So he felt that was the starting point of all personal effectiveness. Right. And and in this book, he interviewed so many very successful people. But let me ask you something. So what is your chief aim? Uh, my chief aim is exploring esoteric and metaphysical spirituality and illuminating it for masses of people, illuminating its history and application. That's what I've dedicated myself to for uh, more than a decade. Mm, that's so beautiful that you know that. I, I would have to say that my chief aim is to be a healer of conflict. Yes, beautifully put. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that suits your professional life so well. And, and the succinctness of that aim speaks to how validly you feel it. I, I think that that's beautifully succinct. Yeah. I guess I, I would go further to just bring more peace, to be a healer and to bring more peace into the world but in, my, in my own little way, you know? Yeah. I think that each of us can do what we can do in our own way, and then hopefully others will join with us or follow us or we will follow them. And, you know, I mean, I think of, um, you know, mentors for me would be the people that I, I love to read, like, you know, the Dalai Lama or someone like um, Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. you know, people like that, um, that, that I really admire. So you know, One of the, the hallmarks, if I may, of Hill's work, and one of the reasons that I've been so dedicated to him over the years, is that although he wrote his, his primary book, Think and Grow Rich, and some people feel, oh, wow, you know, that title sounds so materialistic and such, you know, he was very dedicated to ethical success, and he believed that whatever your aim is, there has to be a quality of generative and transparency to it. You know, he didn't mm -hmm. in cleverness or craftiness or ethical shortcuts, but he, he believed whatever it is you do in, in providing something that, that is transparent to other people, that delivers at least as much as what you claim and hopefully more, and that gives other people some sort of opportunity to uh, expand their own experience. Yeah, let's talk about when he was around, because like I said, we're on the campus here, but we also have people driving by and young people. You know, he was from what the the 1940s right it was when he was writing uh, he was lived all the way to what the 1970 or something like that he died in 1970 mm -hmm. and uh, it's funny there are he probably 
probably has more readers today than he did during his lifetime. But they're, mm-hmm. they're, I'm constantly surprised by the people I meet who have heard of Napoleon Hill and love him. But it's a large country, and there's a lot of people, right. including you know people in the younger generation who haven't heard of Napoleon Hill. He was basically a journalist who, in the early 20th century, set himself to the task of trying to determine whether there were a, a set of common traits in the lives of exceptional people. Mm-hmm. First book came out in 1928. It was called The Law of Success. And he identified essentially 17 traits that he said you'll find repeating over and over and over in the lives of remarkable people. And he, he wrote a shorter digest of that book and a more famous book in 1937 called Think and Grow Rich, which sort of became his hallmark work. And he believed that there were these basic traits that repeated over and over in the lives of remarkable people and that it was possible for an individual to identify these traits, cultivate them in oneself, and uh, carry out your plans in the world, you know, whatever they may be. Although he did place a strong emphasis on the fact that your plans needed to be transparent, not exploitative. They needed to deliver uh, what you you said they were in a in a fair way that presumably expands the life of another person. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't about kind of this blind, mindless grasping, but it was about true self-development. And he, as I mentioned, you know, he died in 1970. He's probably grown in popularity a great deal uh, in the 21st century. He's being read around the world. And I can't recommend his work enough. You know, I I hand it to friends, strangers, people in my family. Uh, My kids are probably a little young to read Napoleon Hill, but I've thought about writing a Think and Grow Rich for young people because I, I feel very strongly that whatever you're about in life and however you see yourself, whether you're an activist, business person, soldier, teacher, entrepreneur, whatever you are about... Uh, Hill's work helps you enact your plans in the world. He was a remarkable observer of human nature. I think his principles are right. I've certainly followed them myself. I would never ask anybody to do anything that I haven't already done myself. I've been a close follower and admirer and, I guess, commentator on his ideas for uh, many years. Mm -hmm. And in my personal experience, in my intimate experience, they work. So I, I, I think that whatever you're into, put Think and Grow Rich or one of Hill's books on your reading list. It, 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 it's really just a set of ideas that will make you more effective. What are the most important principles or the ones that you really personally find are, are most formidable? Yeah, the, the, the most important ones, in this book, The Path to Personal Power, which Hill originally wrote in 1941 and never published, and which I just reissued and is really out for the first time, he identifies three principles that he felt were foundational to his program. And I, I think in my experience, these principles have been central. Uh, The first I alluded to earlier, which is having a definite chief aim. And again, it's so easy to skip past a step like that and to say to yourself, you know, that sounds so obvious to me. You know, I know what my aims are, but look again, look again, because a really mature scrutiny of whether you have a consciously focused, very definite, plainly worded, actionable aim is such an important question. It may be the most important question you ever ask yourself in life. So look again. It's so crucial. Uh, And I just want to say something, Mitch. It shouldn't be something like, I want to make a million dollars this year. (laughs) 
you know, that kind of aim is is not really a deep or passionate aim. I mean, so what if you make a million dollars? I mean, that may be an aim that that is going to bring you some some happiness and some wonderful opportunities. But but everyone has a purpose, right? A, a deep purpose. And and Hill's challenge to people, as you've just alluded, was not, well, gee, I'd like to make a million dollars. You know, well, yeah. arguably, you know, so would most people. But the fact is, you know, he would ask, what, what service are you going to provide? What concrete, definable service are you going to provide that would be worth a million dollars? And what are your organized plans? And do you have accurate thinking about it? And mm. are you in a position in terms of geography and physicality and other things that are going to allow these plans to be actionable until and to unfold? You know, he, he really held people to a standard of organized thinking, accurate thinking. And one of the tools he felt uh, that could help in that respect, and that's the second of the three principles in Path to Personal Power, is the formation of what he called a mastermind group, which is really just a support group. Right. That it's absolutely vital to form in a group of two or more people and meet at regular intervals. Uh, my mastermind group meets once a week. I find that that's fairly typical, where you discuss your plans, your ideas, you exchange suggestions, depending upon the nature of the group and the people involved. You might exchange prayers, affirmations, meditations. And Hill's principle is, first of all, you need to have partners and other people with whom you're exchanging plans, but you should choose them with great care. Yeah. His his dictum was that if you just run around kind of sharing your ideas with just anyone, including friends, including family members, including roommates, you know, you're going to run into people who just kind of bark opinions at you without really being informed. You're going to run into people who might, frankly, be uh, jealous uh, of what it is you're proposing or who feel perhaps they haven't developed their own ideas and so they dedicate themselves to running down other people's. I think we've all had that experience. Right. You might mm-hmm. run into people who simply aren't informed about what you're trying to accomplish, even if they're brilliant people. Mm-hmm. Brilliant people give me terrible advice. I've gotten awful advice from very <laughs> capable, brilliant people just because they didn't know the specifics of what it was I was I was working on. They didn't understand the nature of a given project. So Hill's dictum is to form a mastermind group, two or more people. Uh, you can meet face-to-face. You can meet through conference call, but you have to meet regularly. You have to set a time. You have to meet regularly. And he believed that the pooling of people's intellects, so to speak, uh, resulted in an effect that was greater than the sum of the parts, that we, we sharpen our faculties for... Uh, intuition for all kinds of brainstorming, for the arrival of new ideas, for the vetting of ideas. Mm-hmm. We partner with other people. It's a very easy step to, to neglect because most of us are private and we like to do our work and conduct ourselves in private. And I'm the same way and I understand that. But I have found that I've been in uh, what he called a mastermind group since 2013 and it's been absolutely vital to me. I mean, it, it really cracked open the rest of the program for me. So that's that's the second idea. Now, how many people do you have in your mastermind group? Uh, We have, at this point, between four and five regular members. Right, Uh, right. He recommends not going higher than seven because it can get kind of unwieldy. Mm -hmm. The meetings should not drag on. We all have enough meetings in our lives. Uh, I advise that the meetings should be capped at between 45 minutes to 60 minutes. And frankly, you know, I would aim for 45 minutes. They may be 20 minutes. These things don't have to be these long, drawn-out meetings. They should be succinct. They should be to the point. 
um, I'm actually writing a new book called The Power of the Mastermind, which is oh. on that idea. That's going to come out in February of 2018. Wow. Although we have four to five people in my group, it's very orderly. It moves along very quickly, and people respect one another's time. Most of us are in different parts of the country. It extends from uh, New Hampshire to Southern California. I'm in New York. So we set a time uh, on a weekday late morning. Uh, we meet by conference call, and it goes really well because it's, it's very precise and succinct. Are you all writers? No, we're not, actually. Um, one of us is a financial planner. Another crafts uh, custom guitars. Another is mm. a uh, And two of us are writers and editors. Yeah. I was in a mastermind with five people, and it kind of, it was it was interesting, and we shared, it was from, you know, science and mind people. Mm. And, uh, and that was helpful. Um, I think the problem was is that some of us didn't understand each other's goals because we were in such different professions. So I think we could support each other with prayer and, you know, give some ideas, but I think it fell apart because of that. So I I would love to get in another mastermind because of that. Yeah, you know, one of the things Hill emphasizes, and that's a wonderful point you've just raised, is that there must be absolute comity and understanding and harmony of a real sort, you know, within the group. People need to be possessed of similar values. They don't need to come from similar professional backgrounds or anything like that, but they have to have some concrete understanding uh, of what the other person is trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Also very important to remember that you're not there to evaluate or to judge the other person's plans. You're right. to support them in their ethical pursuit of those plans. And, and that's critically and vitally important. Um, and I think the members should be flexible enough so that they're able to see, you know, if, if somebody is a medical professional, I might not understand everything that's necessary for a medical professional who wants to specialize in a given area. But it's not too great a stretch that, you know, I can honor what that person is trying to do I can learn about it. It's it's absolutely vital that, that people have um, good, flexible intellects and uh, similar values. I mean, he, he'll really emphasize, and this speaks directly to the point you were making, he really emphasizes again and again that there needs to be an atmosphere of comity, harmony, cooperation, mm-hmm. authentic way, that that's the only way a mastermind group can really function. Yeah, yeah. So what's the, what's the third principle that, in the book that you think is really important? <clears throat> third principle is, is going the extra mile, doing more than you're paid for. And I, I cannot tell you how absolutely valuable that is. Mm. We live in a world where again and again, we see people doing the minimum necessary. And I would say, you know, whether you are a contractor or an artist preparing for a performance, whoever you are or whatever you do, whether you're a teacher preparing a lesson plan, whatever you're about, it's so critical to say, I'm going to walk into that room or I'm going to face that client or or I'm going to enter that conference or whatever it is. And I'm going to deliver more and better work to people than what I'm being asked to do, what I'm being paid for, what is expected. I'll give you a case in point from my own profession. I'm a writer and I'm also a publisher. Uh, As a publisher at Penguin Random House, I can't tell you the number of times 
uh, in fact, it's the, it's the rule rather than the exception, that people will hand in a, a finished manuscript to me. There's no table of contents. Mm. Pages aren't numbered. The notes aren't done. Uh, they haven't, you know, included, you know, some very basic, ordinary things that you find in a book, for example. There are repeat authors who have been through the writing mill many, many, many times who know that, you know, if you want to include an acknowledgments, a dedication, uh, credits, you know, what have you, it's not another person's job to chase after you for that, but it's your job to turn that in complete. And, you know, it's one small slice of life, but I think everybody can relate to it, you know, that when you ask someone and pay someone to do a job for you, let's say it's a home contractor, Mm -hmm. if you walk home and not only is the job done, but that person, for example, has scrupulously cleaned up, you never forget it. You want to reward that person. You want to commend that person. You want to give that person additional money. You want to call that person's boss and say, wow, what an amazing job this guy did. Now, again, it's very easy to overlook this because it sounds like kind of refrigerator magnet wisdom, like, oh, Mm -hmm. sure, you know, I get it. Do more than I'm paid for, but the truth is, we don't get it. It it bears it bears scrutiny. It bears scrutiny. If you consistently deliver more than is expected, and you really bring what you're doing to just the razor's edge of excellence, and think about you know what is the experience of the end user? The end user has a life that's filled with stress, presumably. Um, he or she may have all kinds of concerns and issues, and if you become the one person who makes that individual's day or week better because you've thought of every final detail, you will never be forgotten and you will be asked to come back and your work will be described in glowing terms to other people. It's ethically right and it's it's right from a business perspective. So that was was Hill's uh, third principle in Path to Personal Power. Yeah, I know whenever I have somebody that I'm talking to within airlines or, you know, all the bureaucracy that you have to go through. Whenever I get someone who really cares, who really takes the time with me, I and I know it's being recorded, I go crazy. I go, gosh, you're so wonderful. Thank you so much. I, You made my day or whatever. I do that. And then if I get one of those afterwards, one of the little evaluations that they send me, I always fill it out. Some people just don't take the time to do that, though. I know that they don't. They kind of, it's like expected. But but you're right. When somebody goes that extra mile, it's just so wonderful. It really makes you feel like you're cared about, and you want to be uh, reciprocal to, to them and to pass it on. And what you'll find is the rest of their work usually checks out as well. You know, if somebody takes the trouble to uh, you know, just 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 deliver something to you in impeccably good shape. As you examine what they've delivered, whether you know it's a it's a program or a piece of writing or a piece of landscaping, whatever it is. A colleague of mine has an expression, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And if you Mm. discover that somebody's done one thing with impeccability, almost always they've done everything with impeccability. So it's kind of a code. It's, It's kind of a core sample to the rest of the person's work. That's interesting. So with this book that you that you edited and you brought it really for the first time out there, I, th- I think it came out um, before World War II and then it kind of got lost. Is that what happened to it? Actually, he never published it. He wrote oh. it in 1941, just before America's entry into the Second World War. And um, times were very different uh, when the nation entered the war. 
everything got channeled in the direction of the war effort. Transportation, uh, right. there was paper rationing, um, basic industries were kind of rejiggered overnight uh, to be part of the war effort, the munitions industry, and so forth. The economy changed uh, very quickly, and publishing changed, and with paper rationing and other things, transportation, uh, rerouting. Um, publishing and everything else was organized on a different footing, and he he wound up not publishing the book. And and uh, after the uh, war was over, uh, he never returned to it, and and never seemed to revisit it until his death in 1970. Mm. And it was rediscovered recently by members of the Napoleon Hill Foundation, who maintained his uh, copyrights among other things. And they they brought it to me, and I just thought it was a wonderful find. Yeah. So how is this really different from Think and Grow Rich? In terms of um, what's the the philosophy is very similar, right? Yes, yes. I, I would encourage everyone to read Think and Grow Rich, and I, I don't think there's any substitute exactly or shortcut for Think and Grow Rich. But he did feel like if you want kind of a sample, uh, if you want a core sample of of what he's about, if you want to kind of dip your toe in the pool, so to speak, these three principles Hill saw as the entry point to the longer Think and Grow Rich program. If you like them, if they work for you, you're almost certainly going to want to read Think and Grow Rich. And I wouldn't say they're a substitute for Think and Grow Rich, but they are a really serviceable digest. They are the basic three points that he felt were at the foundation of his program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So why does Hill call these lessons mental dynamite? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, he had a penchant for flowery phraseology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One could never say that he wasn't a salesman. Uh, but look, you know, he and the other um, pioneers of self-help were also great communicators. You know, some of these people created titles that have kind of entered the firmament of our culture, like Think and Grow Rich, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. um, The Game of Life. Uh, these titles were phrases that just captured the mind. These people were masters of communication. He did believe that if you followed the program earnestly, if you followed it seriously, if you went into the deep end of the pool, uh, it could blow apart kind of conformist habits of thinking. It could challenge you in areas of your life where you're too comfortably settled. It could disrupt uh, assumptions. And I, I think that's a, that's a fair statement on his part. Mm. You know, I'm thinking that the reason, you know, he not only because of rationing paper, but, you know, at the time of World War II, we were looking at survival at that point. So people weren't thinking about deep philosophy. They were thinking about the war effort, about what could happen, you know, now that we were bombed in, in the United States with Hawaii. I think people were kind of just scared and not thinking about deeper philosophy that he had been thinking about well, you know, the, the the whole culture is so different in the sense that even the, the phrase war effort, it's hard to imagine that fitting to our 21st century culture where uh, people have been, I think, unhealthfully isolated from policies that the government pursues. You know, a, a, a war is undertaken and many people are able to keep, you know, playing Xbox as if nothing ever 
happened. Uh, nothing ever went wrong. You know, whereas a case for the war was made in a concrete way, people were aware of it and aware of the sacrifices entailed, and the sacrifices were shared, were shouldered uh, much more fully across society than anything we've seen in the 21st century. So our culture has changed dramatically as well. Well, we only have about another minute, so I, I almost hate to ask some of these questions because I know it's going to take way too long. But um, if you would just want us to remember one thing and and look for that either in Think and Go Rich or The Path to Personal Power, what would that be? The one thing I would encourage everyone to do is to sit down in a mature, sustained way and scrutinize whether they have an authentic aim in life. Asking yourself that question can have just tremendous potency. Don't assume you know, but really subject yourself to scrutiny. So if they say, for example, you know, I want to be famous, then the question would be to ask, how are you going to be famous? Why do you want to be famous? What is going to make you famous? I mean, what kind of questions do they need to ask themselves? What's, is, is it a realistic goal? Is there organized planning behind it? Is there applied thinking behind it? Is there accurate thinking behind it? Do you have the talents? Do you have the training? Or do you have the capacity to get the training that's going to get you where you want to go? You know, presumably somebody wants a career in the arts. You know, what specifically do you want to do? Do you understand the sacrifices in Involved. If you can make a mature and sustained scrutinizing of those questions and others, uh, it could be a life-changing experience. You could find yourself with a sense of direction that might have eluded you before. Oh, Mitch, that is wonderful, especially for the people who are students and grad students listening in. So, Mitch Horowitz, you're wonderful, and you have wonderful books, The Path to Personal Power by Napoleon Hill. You edited that, and of course, your other books. So, we look forward to having you back again with your new book, okay? It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye, thanks. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org in the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. You gotta fight both night and day Doesn't matter what some people may say Don't be the lamb's cry, be the lion's roar Cause love is worth fighting for I know, yeah Love is worth fighting for Love is worth fighting for